0: Hello, I'm Peter Van Dusen, and this is the Primetime Politics Podcast. On our program tonight, the government's coronavirus evacuation plan for Canadians in China takes shape and includes a two-week quarantine at a Canadian military base when the Canadians do return home. We'll have the latest from the government and health officials. The Green Party launches its leadership race with rules it hopes will attract a wide variety of candidates, while the Conservative contest raises prospects of a coronation. More on both contests coming up. Longtime Quebec Senator Serge Wael takes mandatory retirement from the upper chamber And leaves with a candid assessment of the changes to the Senate. And our panel of parliamentary journalists on Canada's bid for a seat on the UN Security Council, leadership races, and a government under fire over the notion of licensing media. But we'll begin tonight with the latest information on Canada's plan to evacuate Canadians from coronavirus-affected areas of China. Federal health officials held a news conference today to update the plan. Here's what we know. The government is still waiting uh, for permission from the Chinese to land a chartered plane in Wuhan to airlift the 300-plus stranded Canadians who said they want to leave China. Now, the government says that it's got approval from the Chinese to carry out the airlift, just not a slot for when that can happen. And the government has an option to charter a second plane if needed. Once they do return to Canada, the evacuees will spend two weeks in a quarantine at the Canadian Forces Base in Trenton, Ontario. In a moment, I'll speak with Canada's Minister of Health, but first, here's the Minister of Foreign Affairs, François-Philippe Champagne. Once the plane is in position on its way to uh, Hanoi and when the plane departs from China, we'll give you all the updates and we will give you also the exact number of people on the manifest. I just want to make sure that the manifest is completed and we're doing that as we speak. Patty Hyde, who is Canada's Minister of Health, and she is with me now in our studios to give us uh, the latest on the government's plans to deal with this uh, coronavirus outbreak and to get those Canadians uh, in China back home. Good to see you
1: again. Nice to see you. Thanks
0: for being here. So let's start there. Where are you as a government in the process of of trying to repatriate these Canadians uh, and get them back to this country?
1: So uh, we're uh, moving along. We've secured a plane, as you know. We have uh, confirmation from the Chinese authorities that we can land the plane in Wuhan. Now we're just waiting for a time slot to actually be able to begin the process of uh, boarding. And uh, in the meantime, consular services are working with the families in Wuhan and mm-hmm. in the region to make sure that they understand uh, what their obligations on their end will be, including getting to the airport, w- figuring out what assistance they'll need for that, and understanding what kind of documentation I'll need on the, on the Chinese side. Are,
0: so are, are we talking a matter of hours ambitiously here? Are we talking still days?
1: Well, it's hard to predict uh, because it really largely rests in in the control of the Chinese government right now. The Wuhan airport, as you know, is completely shut down for Mm. any commercial flights, and they are still using it to receive um, medical supplies and other supplies that they're running low of in the city. So we're working within their timeline. Obviously, as quickly as possible is our preference.
0: Okay. Um Okay. I mean, try and walk me through a little bit. Why is the approval process taking so long? You're waiting on the Chinese, but what, what, what's involved in that? Explain to people watching who think, like, why isn't this getting done? Mm-hmm.
1: Well, obviously, uh, first of all, we had to figure out where we could station our crew, and so we've been able to secure permission from uh, Vietnam to, mm-hmm. to be able to depart from Hanoi, so that's a lot closer, so that we can actually be ready to go when Wuhan says there is a slot. As I mentioned, uh, the Chinese authorities have indicated to us that uh, the airspace is very congested right now. They've uh, Listen, this is a city that's fully quarantined. What that means is that supplies are not easily uh, flowing in and out of the city uh, there is a great need for emergency supplies and so there's a lot of activity and it's really about finding the slot where Canadian uh, where the Canadians can land the plane mm. and actually start the rep- repatriation but
0: other countries have been able to do that and so was were, was were we a little slow out of the gate in terms of, of getting on this uh, and, well, and trying to find a plane get it on standby waiting to see I know there was Questions in the beginning of how many Canadians would actually want to be evacuated, but uh, even without knowing what that final number uh, was going to be, uh, wouldn't it have been prudent to put a plane on standby and be ready to go?
1: Well, I would dispute that because, in fact, we didn't think we had that many Canadians who wanted to leave. So we were looking at relationships with uh, other allied countries that were in the process of doing a repatriation process to see if we could uh, place Canadians that had indicated they wanted to leave on those planes. But as I and my colleagues began to speak about the need for people in the region to register with the Global Affairs Consulate Services, the numbers went up dramatically. As a matter of fact, 101 day. So we went from 63 Canadians in Wuhan or the Hubei region that were saying they needed some assistance in some form or another, not all wanting to leave, to 163 overnight. And that's when we realized we're going to need to secure a plane. And so these pieces have been in play for the last several days. On the domestic side, which is the side that I'm more responsible for, that's the planning that we've been been taking this time, actually, to put together a plan to make sure we can receive the Canadians safely. And they're going to be
0: received at CFB Trenton. They're going to be quarantined for 14 days. I guess some people wonder why do they need to be put into quarantine at CFB Trenton if they're. My understanding is at this point they're showing no symptoms. That's right. Those Canadians in Wuhan, Uh, why couldn't they be put in isolation at home?
1: Well, what we know is that you uh, can still be ill and be asymptomatic. So to be perfectly safe, we have decided to quarantine people from the Wuhan region uh, for 14 days. Wuhan is the epicenter of the outbreak. Uh, in fact, the majority of infection takes place in the area around Wuhan and in the Hubei province. And uh, for an abundance of caution uh, for theirs and for the safety of all other Canadians, uh, 14-day quarantine is appropriate. And
0: what is that going to look like? Uh, so that's why. Trenton, what are they facing at Trenton?
1: So Trenton was selected because it does have the capacity to house that number of people in individual apartment like settings if you will the rooms are comfortable but they are private and so we can actually keep people separate but we can also support them with their needs we'll have staff on site from uh, public health staff uh, other medical professionals as well as mental health staff and social supports for all of the people returning you have to remember that people are returning in some cases who haven't been living in Canada for a while they might be students or they might be on a contract working in China so all of that will need to get sorted out and this has been a very traumatic experience for them. They've been essentially locked down in a city for quite some time without any certainty about whether or not they're going to be able to meet their own basic needs mm. in Wuhan, never mind once they return to Canada getting sorted out in their, in their, in their lives.
0: The U.S. has declared a health emergency and banned entry to uh, any foreigners who've traveled to China in the past two weeks. New Zealand, Australia, eight other countries have done the same. Canada's not doing that, and you explained today why not.
1: Well, first of all, the World Health Organization has actually said that travel uh, restrictions, in terms of increased border restrictions, is not actually helpful in terms of containing the virus, and it actually can add to, um, and it actually can add to the, the challenges around communication and transmission of information for countries. So, if you imagine that, uh, you know, you stop, uh, you stop uh, sort of relationships with countries mm-hmm. w- through border security measures that are excessive, it actually gets harder to actually share. Information and share goods and services that might be needed to contain the virus. Uh, secondly, we have a very thorough screening process at the airports. We have, uh, for the entire region of Hubei, we have an additional question on the kiosk. We've got public health professionals partnered with CBSA. We're providing information both verbally and in a written form to people who are arriving, so they know what to look for and they know what symptoms to report and how to do that in a safe measure. That has actually proved to be very effective. All four cases were detected through those self-reporting mechanisms which then allowed for the public health agencies in their various jurisdictions to actually control and isolate that patient and then do the contact tracing as appropriate
0: all right we'll watch as the story continues to unfold Uh, health minister patty heidi thanks for your time
1: thank you very much
0: China has confirmed more than 17,000 cases of the virus now. The death toll has risen to over 360. Four confirmed cases in Canada. Three in Ontario and one in British Columbia. Now, the opposition parties have been demanding more detail about the government's plan for evacuating the Canadians from China now they have some of it, so let's bring in three members of Parliament to discuss the government's response from the foyer of the House tonight. Joined once again by Rob Oliphant, the Parliamentary Secretary to the Minister of Foreign Affairs. Robert Kitchen is the Deputy Health Critic for the Official Opposition Conservatives. And Don Davies is the Health Critic for the NDP. I just spoke with the Minister of Health, Patty Haidu. So Mr. Kitchen, let me start with you. Your party's been calling for a detailed plan from the government for how it's going to get these Canadians home from Canada. We got more details today. What questions do you still have about the plan?
2: Well, it's interesting. They, they come up with a plan today, which is great, which we've been asking for in committee last week, and, and we're looking forward to hearing more about it, but it, it does spell out a lot more of the information that we wanted to hear. The issues that we, we want to follow forward on, though, are where and what has happened in, that's transpired before this, and how are we going to step forward to assure Canadians that, that everything was done from day one when, when this was, came to attention. Okay,
0: such as what? what? What more do you need to know at this point? Are you satisfied now with the plan
2: they have to get these Canadians out of China? So we, we've listened to the Minister and, um, and Dr. Tam were with us last week, and, and today we met with CBSA and, and GAC and a number of other... And Transport Department Transport, and Public right. Safety, yep. And they, they spilled out a lot of things that are there, but there's still some concerns that are out there. For example, the plane that uh, originally came that, that brought the original uh, first case into Canada question is that now we're identifying that there's potential that people are on those planes that there might be the virus within that plane and the reality is when asked the question where is that plane we don't know where it is and when asked today do they know they have no idea
0: all right mister davies a uh, youtube called for a, a plan and better communication from the government are you satisfied today
3: well uh, uh, Satisfied is a, I don't know if that's the word I would use. I mean, I I think the government is moving along. Uh, Whether or not they're moving along as fast as they ought to be, I think is a different question. And there still are, I think, a lot of very uh, important questions that are are yet to be answered. For instance, uh, in committee, which we just came from to do this interview, uh, we didn't get a clear answer to the question of what the status of permanent residents in China are. And we've got issues of couples, you know, let's say the husband is a Canadian citizen and the wife is not, or there's a Canadian citizen child there with their grandparents, we still don't have really clear uh, answers about whether those permanent residents will be allowed to come back. Um, we, don't know, um, we, we don't know exactly what the plan is for the other countries that the WHO just indicated concern about. We, we have to remember that the WHO declared a public health emergency of international mm-hmm. concern because they were worried that there are countries around the world that don't have the ability to deal with coronavirus. So I asked the question, does Canada have a list of what those countries are so we can get ahead of the game, ahead of the curve, and make sure that we're screening people coming from those countries before they get here? No such list exists, apparently.
0: All right, Mr. Olyphant, let me let me have you pick up on some of the concerns of your colleague. Can you answer? Uh, I mean, I guess let's start with Mr. Kitchens' point. Uh, there are still some questions around uh, the, I guess, the protection process in this country. Do you, do you know the answer to where the well, where the plane's gone that, that carried the first infected Canadian uh, back from China?
4: I, I think that the, the the first thing we need to talk about is the fact that uh, we have had a number of plans. It's not that we've had no plan. Uh, we've had a number of plans depending on how the situation unfolded. Just going back one week, we had two Canadians registered a week ago that were requesting consular assistance to come home. Today we have 304. That's in seven days. Uh, Each of those uh, people that have been added to the list have necessitated response. Uh, we immediately engaged a, a contract with an airplane to get that available with a crew that was trained. We now have visas have been issued for all the uh, the workers on that plane, the, the crew on that plane, who are trained in this sort of situation. We're recognizing that at 304 we'll need two planes, so we now have mm-hmm. engaged two planes to do that. Can These you- are the kinds of things that a government does. We are following very closely a fluid situation and watching as it unfolds to make sure that we are uh, providing the leadership that Canadians would expect do, do you to think to are
0: Do you think we're, uh, uh, I mean, the sticking point now seems to be, it sounds, sounds like the Chinese are, uh, uh, have given us approval to get a plane in there. The question is when to do it. Uh, do you know if we're talking hours or are we talking days here still?
4: Uh, We're very close on this Uh, right now the when the visas were issued for the crew to be able to fly and to land uh, that was a very good sign. Chinese officials have been cooperative they have obviously an overwhelming concern about keeping the virus as limited as possible and defeating the virus, making sure that it is extinguished. So that's their number one goal. Their secondary goal is obviously helping nationals from other countries. We recognize the primacy of, of ending the disease. So we are working with them. We are advocating on behalf of Canadians. We are making sure we have airplanes at the ready. Uh, I, I am hoping okay. that shortly we'll be able to tell you when that is, is happening. All right, Mr., Mr., so we'll bring them home.
0: Mr. Kitchen, uh, once they get here, they'll be quarantined at CFB uh, Trenton. Uh, is, does that seem like the right way to go to you to quarantine these people when they get back for 14 days?
2: Definitely. When we hear that the basically the the time frame is, is a 14-day time frame uh, from exposure and incubation period, so that time frame is being identified by the World Health Organization, it's been identified by Dr. Tam, and it's one that we need to make certain that we follow through on. Uh, basically, and as we hear and what we've heard today with the plane leaving China or in Vietnam right now into into China, picking up the uh, the evacuees, flying them back, uh, stopping in uh, Vancouver, uh, not taking them, deboarding them, and then refueling the plane and then flying them into to Trenton is right. a, a tremendous thing. You know, we're trying to put them in a place where throughout that flight that they're being looked after, which is important to do to not only make certain that, A, when they get on the plane, that they, they aren't showing signs and symptoms. As they progress, it's a fantastic idea where we see them. They, they have an isolation right. room on the plane, from what we understand. This is great things. and. and as we've indicated, this is a, is a disease that is transpiring as we go. How mm-hmm. long it'll be and how far it'll go, whether it'll be a month, whether it'll be two months, right. it, okay. it's hard to see. Uh, the time is kind of short for
0: us tonight, so Mr. Davies, let me, let me end with you here. The, the, so the, the, the notion of the quarantine and the plan for the quarantine, you've uh, heard about that. I think you were talking to health officials a bit, or the foreign affairs people about some of that at committee today, maybe. Are uh, you satisfied with that plan to put these people in isolation for 14 days?
3: Uh, well, in a word, yes. Um, I think that uh, there's no doubt that they have to be quarantined for 14 days, but there's, there's still y- yet further information we need. For instance, I asked the question, what is the government's position on asymptomatic transmission? In other words, uh, does, does the Canadian government, are they assuming that people can or they cannot transmit this virus when they're asymptomatic? I heard crickets uh, from the committee. You know, sometimes I learn more sitting here than I do at committee. Mr. Oliphant said he's sending two planes. I asked that question in committee. They couldn't say how many planes they were sending. Well, they have one so for sure,
0: and they've uh, got uh, a, yeah. Mr. Oliphant. We'll we'll yeah. One for sure. A yeah. uh, very quick final yeah. question to answer for you, is Mr. Oliphant, on that.
4: Well, the, the reality is we won't even know how many people will get on board because China will not allow anyone with symptoms to get on the right. plane. So they're going so to be, be screened there by screens, the Chinese,
0: yeah. then screened by the Canadians. And, and we, then,
4: we Yes, and, and we'll have a second plane ready, if we need it. And that's what we're trying to do. And and the situation is fluid. Uh, they will be taken care of, and Canadians at home will be safe. We have those two goals, making sure that Canadians at home are safe and making sure that Canadians get to get home. All
0: right, gentlemen, it's a fast-moving story. Appreciate your input tonight, and we'll uh, stay on top of it. Thank you all.
4: Thank, Thank you. you, Peter.
0: Well, let's turn to political party leadership races in this country now. The federal Green Party announced the rules for its leadership contest today. And those rules are much less onerous than the rules for the Conservative Party contest. More on the Greens coming up. But let's start with the Conservatives. Contestants in that race have to pony up $300,000 as an entrance fee and collect 3,000 signatures. Clearly not a problem for at least one of the declared candidates. Over the weekend, Peter McKay slapped down the entire $300,000 fee required to be a leadership candidate and the 3000 signatures of endorsement, even though all of that was only due by the 25th of March. Conservative MP Erin O'Toole has made the initial deposit of $25,000 and collected 1,000 signatures. That's required by a deadline of February 25th. Some Conservatives have complained that the entry fee being charged by the party of $300,000 is too steep, Others are happy it will likely keep some potential candidates on the sidelines. And if that doesn't, maybe some of their views on social issues will. All of the candidates will have to be green-lighted by the Leadership Election Organizing Committee or its subcommittee. Former MP, Cabinet Minister and Deputy Leader Lisa Raitt is the co-chair of the uh, Leadership Election Organizing Committee for the Conservatives. She joins me now from her office in Toronto where she's just started her new job as Vice Chair of Global Investment Banking with CIBC. Lisa Raitt, good to see you again and congratulations on the new job.
5: Thanks a lot, Peter.
0: Uh, let's talk about the the, the leadership uh, election race here in the Conservative Party and where we are. We, we, we saw the entry rules for the, the Green Party leadership unveiled today. $50,000 uh, commitment from the candidates to get into the race, and they only need to sign up 250 uh, Green Party members from across the country instead of the 3,000 members that the Conservatives need to sign up, along with a $300,000 uh, uh, investment into the leadership race payment. Uh, were you, your rules meant to, to trim the field of potential candidates? Uh, look at the difference in what these two parties are doing.
5: Well, it was meant to find serious contenders. Um, we have a, a base membership list of about 145,000 Canadians. So finding 3,000 signatures shouldn't be that too much of an onerous deal. For, uh, for real candidates. And secondly, in terms of the quantum for the for the amount that you put down, it's 300000 a 100000 of that is a compliance deposit you get back mm-hmm. if you behave and if you follow all the rules. So it's 200000 in and of itself, and we think that's the right amount for somebody who will conceivably be the Prime Minister of Canada.
0: You were one of the 14 candidates in the last leadership race. Was the lesson from that race that the field was, was too big and needed to be narrowed?
5: From my perspective only, not speaking on behalf of LIAC, I can tell you that there was no incentive for you to leave the race once you were in it. Once you put in the amount of money that you put in, there was really no reason why you wouldn't just stick it out to the end. And that's why we ended up with all of these debates that had so many contenders on the stage that you really couldn't get a chance to measure them for their medal. And right now we have two candidates who have uh, made it through their first hurdle, that is making sure they have their 1,000 signatures in and their first installment is in. Mm And we are looking at a lot of other candidates who say that they are going to be able to put together the amount of signatures and the amount of money. And we look forward to welcoming them to the race as well, should they succeed.
0: Yeah, well, time will tell whether they can actually meet those mm-hmm. thresholds. But over the weekend, we saw uh, the Peter McKay, you, you touched on the candidates who've, who've made the, uh, uh, met the requirements, say they've got the money and the, and the, uh, the uh, member support. Peter McKay's already paid the entire deposit and already collected the 3,000 signatures. And I guess some people are already wondering uh, about a possible leadership coronation here. How concerned are you about that, and is that good for the race?
5: I, I don't believe that um, that anybody within our movement right now is really seriously thinking that we're going to be having a race that isn't going to be competitive i mean we have already aaron o'toole is in the race peter mckay is in the race there's many more who are saying that they're going to be entering the race who are being covered in terms of media what their policy positions are and all of this discussion is just really good for the conservative movement and for the party themselves and people can make up their minds as to which candidate they're going to be voting for no one is sewed up everyone still hasn't they don't have their ballot in hand they haven't made a final decision so people can say that what they think is going on the reality is there is a race and there's going to be more people i believe that are going to be successful in entering the race and i look forward to the debates that follow in the spring
0: do you think there's going to be more people than those that we've already heard from
5: i don't see why not i take every candidate at their word that they believe that they're in it for the for the long run and and that they're going to be attempting to hit the hurdles remember the first hurdle of uh, being able to put in a hundred thousand or twenty five thousand dollars in a thousand signatures that's not a significant hurdle they should be able to do that and move on to the next one in order to get the list to to reach out to membership and the final hurdle is the one that happens at the end of march and after that you are Going to be included in the debates that go forward, and you'll be on the ballot as well.
0: Right. As you've been watching this race unfold here, we start to see a bit of a, a narrative taking place uh, with uh, you know sort of the different leadership candidates and 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 some of the party members talking about what it is the party really needs. And we're hearing about red Tories and 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 blue Tories and the grassroots and and growing the tent and and, and how you do that. Um, what are you thinking as you hear that debate about whether the party needs somebody who might uh, broaden the tent by attracting, you know, uh, the suggestion that Peter McKay would be liberal light uh, versus Aaron O'Toole as the the true blue Tory? Uh, what do you think of that conversation?
5: Well, I think what Canadians and what Conservatives are seeing is that people are positioning themselves as to what kind of leader they are. And you're getting a choice. You can choose amongst the different types of conversations that are happening with the different candidates. And I would say John Williamson has also expressed interest, and certainly Marilyn Gladue has expressed interest. Derek Sloan has been talking about uh, what he believes in. And I believe that um, people are going to be able to take a look at all the different kinds of conservatives. We are very much a big tent organization. People have different points of view. And that's what a leadership race is all about, Peter. It's about putting what you believe in on the table and trying to convince members that this is the path to take to be a Conservative and to be a Conservative government in this country.
0: Okay, can you tell me where your committee is? And and as much as you know about this, uh, is in the process of vetting candidates for the party leadership. They have to fill out this 45-page questionnaire. What's the purpose of that questionnaire?
5: Well, it's no different than if you were going to be a candidate in any real party here in this country, that you make sure that you give up as much information as asked by the party to determine whether or not you're suitable to be a candidate to carry the banner of the Conservative Party of Canada. And that's the same analysis that's happening with the leadership as well. Um, The committee, the subcommittee of LIOC that meets after this application has been submitted, after the signature is submitted, after the money has been submitted, will have serious questioning of the candidate. And the reason being is that you want to make sure that there's no surprises and that they match up with what are the tenets and the principles of the Conservative Party of Canada. It is a real test to go through this. It is not something that's a rubber stamp. Just because you raise the money and just because you produce the signatures does not mean that you're going to be a candidate it's taken very seriously and we have gone through this process twice so far once with aaron o'toole and once with peter mckay and i can't comment on anybody who else who may or may not have submitted their application and are in process because until we say that they're a candidate they're just not a candidate
0: right uh okay uh so uh, we do have Mr. Decarry from Quebec who says he wants to be a candidate. And you know his comments from a couple of weeks ago that uh, uh, being gay is a choice and that if he's Prime Minister, he'll reopen the same-sex marriage discussion with a view to making marriage, once again, the exclusive domain of, of a man and a woman. Uh, 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 you know, I don't know if... I, I guess you're saying he hasn't gone through the vetting process yet. Has, hasn't been questioned if that's true. Uh, but on the face of it, the comments he's already made, don't they exclude him because those are at odds with party policy?
5: Well, that's going to be a decision of the subcommittee of LIOC who does the testing. They they ask serious questions of the candidates. They determine whether or not they have all the information they need to make a decision. And the, this, this committee isn't about screening potentially to get rid of people in the race. That's not what it's about. It's to make sure that the candidates that put forward adhere to the Constitution and the principles, and they line up with the values of conservatives. So it's that kind of a check. It's not an attempt— to try to find that gotcha moment that somebody should not be a member of the race. It really is to tease out and make sure that we all understand that as the leader of the Conservatives, you're going to be upholding the Constitution and what it means. And there's more than one person on this committee, Peter, Mm -hmm. so that means there's going to be a variety of opinions on it, and I would leave it to the committee to have any discussions on the interpretation of the Constitution and and comments that are made in the application But on on the
0: face of it, if Mr. DeCarey was to repeat those comments in an interview, after filling out this questionnaire and and repeat what he said in public to this uh, subcommittee, wouldn't that disqualify
5: him? I'm not gonna prejudice what the committee is gonna be deciding if and when they have an application of any of the other candidates in front of them. It's really tenuous to to try to figure out what's gonna happen with the committee. I believe that it's their decision they're the ones that are going to be face-to-face with anybody who fills out the application, and they'll be making the determination. So I'm not going to say what they may or may not think in a hypothetical. I'm going to let them do their, do their work that they've been asked to do by National Con- Council of Conservatives.
0: All right. Uh, Lisa Raid, always good to talk to you. Thanks for your time today, and uh, we'll get a chance to talk again. Appreciate it.
5: You bet. Thanks, Peter.
0: The Green Party of Canada launched its leadership race today to choose the successor to Elizabeth May, who's held that job for 13 years. Any interested candidates will have to put up a $50,000 entry fee and collect just 250 signatures from members from across the country, including Young Greens. The new leader will be chosen at a convention in Charlottetown in October. Joanne Roberts is the interim leader of the Green Party of Canada. She joins me now from Charlottetown, where those leadership rule, r- rules rather were unveiled today. Joanne Roberts, good to see you again. Thanks for taking time to speak with me.
6: Lovely to talk to you too, Peter.
0: Let's start with the entry fee for the leadership race. How did you settle on $50,000?
6: Well, I want to point out that that's not all at once that it's $10,000 when a person enters the race and then they have up to six months to raise the other 40000 And we did that specifically because we do understand that fundraising is a, a part of what uh, a leader does of a national federal party, but also because we want To see the financial resources of party members supporting candidates. But we didn't want to make it too high at the beginning, because we have a number of people who will be interested in this race who may have a provincial base or a regional base, and they'll need to get into the race and then um, be able to build that national base. So we've said $10,000 to enter the race, and then you have up to six months to reach what we call the second phase. So the other 40000
0: Right. So when you compare that, look at the, the Conservatives are charging their candidates $200,000 plus another $100,000, uh, which is basically a, a, a good behaviour charge, and you get that money yeah. back if, if everything goes well. But it's $300,000 you need to come up with. Uh, that's a big difference between these two parties. What would you say about that?
6: And I think it tells you what we're looking for, right? Uh, I think by putting $300,000 in place, uh, the Conservatives have said you have to have fairly wealthy friends, uh, or at least a very wealthy network. What we have said is we feel this is modest, but it it proves that you're serious about getting into this race. It also says you have to reach out to the party. Greens are generous. I don't think any serious candidate will have trouble raising $50,000 over time. But we want to have a diverse, broad, equity-seeking range of candidates. And in order to do that, we needed to position our fee. Uh, in such a place that it did not leave out people with, who may not have uh, you know, wealthy friends or immediate national networks. Um, it is important to build a national network, uh, but I think we're saying we want a wide net, not just two or three people.
0: I think so far it's six candidates have expressed interest in seeking the leadership. Um, let me ask you what it is you think the Green Party will be looking for in, in a new leader uh, to take over from Elizabeth May, who's been there for 13 years.
6: Yeah, it. I think we are looking for many of the things that have made Elizabeth May such an amazing leader, but we're also saying we want to hear what these new contestants bring to the race in terms of passion and vision and the ability to inspire. I think it is the key element in a new leader, uh, something that Elizabeth had in spades, and that is the ability to inspire. And um, so we're looking for... Uh, contestants to come into the race who say, hmm, I have a vision and I want to share it and I want a lot of people to hear it. Um, and I think that'll be an exciting time. We will also see a race, we're already seeing this, that'll be much more collaborative than we've seen from other mm. parties. Because it's a it's a ranked ballot, it's a one member, one vote. So there's value in working together.
0: Uh, let me finish on this. We've, we've, we've seen in the conservative race uh, it's been as much uh, about uh, who hasn't entered that race, as, as who has entered the race. And, I, and I'm, I, you know, I'm guessing what you think that says about where we are in, in, the, in the process today and what it is exactly that people who seek the leadership of a party are actually going for it and, and what exactly you get when you lead a political party in this country. Um, I mean, how concerned are you about the candidates who might not be interested just because of the way politics is and the amount of time it takes to do the job?
6: I think that's a very sad thing for politics, uh, that uh, people are seeing it as something that is negative and uh, something that is not collaborative. I hope that someone who's seeking the green leadership is someone who says, um, activism is great to a point, but we're not going to see change on the climate front without political involvement we want to be we're here in pei and in pei they're doing politics differently they're moving the needle on climate because they have a green official opposition and i think that should inspire someone to take on our federal green leadership
0: all right joanne roberts thanks for your time today and we'll keep an eye on the race as it unfolds here in the next number of months take care bye-bye Well, the third-most senior senator has now retired from the upper chamber. Serge Joyal was appointed to the Senate by Jean Chrétien in 1997. And after 22 years, the lawyer, philosopher, constitutional expert, and let's say it, foil to both conservative and liberal governments, Senator Joyal bid goodbye this weekend to the Senate, but he's promising to continue to play a a role in the democratic life of this nation. And the Honourable Serge Joyal is with me now. Good to see you again. Thanks for being here. So Pleasure, uh, Peter. You, uh, as, as per the Senate rules, you've reached the age of 75, yeah. and so your appointment to the Senate expires. So I guess, first of all, happy birthday. Thank uh, you. That, that was this Thank weekend. You. And then some birthday president, you're, you're fired. Uh, <laughs> yeah. How does that That's make you feel?
7: No gold wash. <laughs> no nothing, <laughs> <laughs> no, <laughs> goodbye. No tap on the shoulder, just get out. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, I mean, it's part of the, I knew the rule, of course, for a long time, and I knew that it would be coming. It's not as if it was a surprise. And, and but I think that uh, you know when you realize that your term will be over uh, you try to make the best of it so in other words even though I was coming close to retirement my my mind was not to say okay I will disengage myself progressively and you know and leave the right. spot to others no I remain committed to my responsibility as you know as up to last Friday I was still the chair of the ethics committee and mm-hmm. and according to an order of the senate I had to sign a report uh, that was to be tabled with the clerk of the Senate last Friday, mm-hmm. so it was my last just This gesture. involved the
0: future of, of Senator Bayak.
7: Exactly, and, and it was a very serious report. We, uh, we spent four days on that report, hearing witnesses and deliberating and thinking about what would be the best course for her and for the Senate. And what
0: did you conclude? What, what's your Well, we
7: conclude that uh, for the time being, Senator Bayak uh, need to be suspended to continue her training, and according to her own lawyer's uh, letter, uh, she expressed the will to continue the need, you know, for training, so that she had a better grasp of what's the Aboriginal history and background in this country.
0: Which are the postings she put on her website? And exactly, so on that because there were five
7: it. letters that uh, were concluded to be of racist tone by the Senate Ethics Officer, and Senator Bayak was requested to remove those letters from her sites.
0: So she she's out. She would be out again then for uh, for the, this current I, Parliament I, again.
7: I ho- I know there okay. is no fixed date. Uh, it is for Senator Bayak, uh to have the opportunity to have the training and uh, to have a report from her trainer uh, that uh, she has satisfied the various objectives of that training program and that the SEO report to the committee. So it is in fact on the responsibility of Senator Bayak to take seriously what the Senate has requested her to do and what she is willing to do so that as soon as she has completed that course of action, uh, the Senate could be informed that uh, that has been achieved, and that Sor- Senator Bayak would resume her seats. So it's not a uh, a sanction uh, that is fixed to a de- you know determined period of time. It is for her to commit herself to do that.
0: Right. Uh, I mean, you had to retire because the Senate rules say you know, the mandatory retirement at the mm. age of 75. Do you think that should be changed? I mean, are you ready to go?
7: Well, I'm not ready to go. I mean, uh, in a way that, you know, I'm still my mind. I'm still very committed. As you know, I, I remain at the job up to the last minute. And uh, I still have touch wood, good health. Uh, and, uh, you know, I'm very passionate about Canada and the challenges that, you know, countries have to face and uh, on the basis of the experience, and I should say with the wisdom also that uh, you, uh, you accumulate through the years. The right, but is, manda- is
0: mandatory retirement for senators at 75? Well, I mean, it's a, you, it's a you, massive constitution. you know, Peter,
7: you have to understand that the retirement age was, was, uh, was determined in 1965. In, in those uh, days, the average uh, age for women and men for men was uh, 72, 73, and for women uh, one year or or so later. We're all living longer So Yes, so now 50 years later, I mean, 50 years later, um, men live up to 81 and women 82, uh, which is the average, so it means that there are some who will live much uh, longer than that. And it's a question of commitment, too. I think that uh, if you're there just to sit there because you have nowhere else to go, well, I think that it's better to leave the place. But if you have a strong commitment to the institution, as I did myself, you know, last year, I was chair of legal and constitutional affairs committee. I was vice chair of rules, I'm chair of of, uh, ethics. So if I would be sloppy on my work, I think my colleague would have said, uh, "Serge, uh, you know, you know, let 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 your seat to someone else." But I I kept the trust of my colleagues uh, all those years, and as I say, the uh, the experience and the perspective and the knowledge that you get from the country. Right. But you're
0: not you're, are you, you're not suggesting they should reopen the the man, are you? No,
7: I think that it's part it is of what the, it is. It, it's the constitutional law and that law applies as much for the justices of the Supreme Court than it does apply to the senators. So if we would be reopening the age it would be essentially on the basis of a charter value. Could you discriminate on the basis of age mm. in terms of retirement those days. You remember Mr. Harper was ready to reopen The retirement age as uh, you know that that is sixty-five to seven sixty-seven. It was reflecting the fact that people can stay longer now because we're in a different economy. You
0: you've been a staunch defender of rights in your time, both as an MP and as a senator, uh, especially language rights. Um, In the '70s, you you said you uh, you sued. The Pierre Trudeau yeah, government. Of uh, course I did, uh, uh,
7: Mr. Trudeau's uh, father, right, you yeah, know. Yeah, o- uh, o- right, over,
0: over the language of air traffic control yeah. in this country. You took the Harper government to court over Senate reform, but you also sided with the Harper government on yep. changing the rules of succession to the British throne, mm-hmm. and you've taken this government to court to, to get it to adopt a French-language version of Canada's yes. constitutional documents. How, and this speaks to the reason I'm raising all of this, because there's this great debate about whether the Senate's independent and mm-hmm. so on. Uh, how did you see your role as a senator when it didn't matter to you who was in government or which party? You were a liberal, you're still a liberal. Well I, I'm still a
7: liberal, I mean probably more liberal. But you weren't than afraid to take on liberal governments? Not at all. On the contrary, I think I do, I, I do of course that in all respects for the responsibility of government. Mr. Trudeau's father had a responsibility for uh, for his government. He, uh, he was the one, you know, that introduced the uh, language, official languages act in 69 mm-hmm. and uh, When his minister of justice, then Otto Lang, adopted a regulation prohibiting the use of French in the cockpit, Mm -hmm. uh, I thought it was totally contrary to the principle of the very act that Mr. Trudeau's government had introduced in parliament. The same with, uh, you know, the uh, Constitution of 1867, still in English only after uh, 152 years. Uh, So it seems to me that there is, you know, Canada evolves, and government have to take the responsibility at the level of the principle they declare that they would be living to.
0: Let's talk about what you leave behind. A, a Senate that is now, uh, it's now styled as, as much more independent. Uh, do you believe that's true? And that do you believe the changes made by Justin Trudeau have been for the
2: better?
7: Well, there is never a perfect solution to you know any of such issue. There are pros and cons. Mr. Trudeau was to avoid the, uh, I should say, the situation in which Mr. Harper found himself, whereby he could order senators to vote in such a way for such an issue. Uh, And we saw the Duffy, you know, Wallen, and Brazil affair and whatnot. And there was a need to reestablish an arm's length you know relationship with the government so that the government the prime minister cannot phone you know the senate and say you have to go in this direction because if if that is the situation how can we exercise sober second thought sober second thought means that the conclusion might be different than what the government has concluded what the house of commons has concluded so there has to be some kind of an arms length you know Right. I should say distance, but Mr. Trudeau decided that the the party allegiance is an obstacle to the independence of the Senate. And you don't believe that? I don't think so. I mean, I don't want to put myself as an I mean make myself an example, but I am an example of somebody who, for not only t- 23 years, but the 10 years I've been in the House of Commons, where I've been totally independent because I thought that I had arguments and when my arguments uh, had to be tested in court and when the court pronounced on those arguments and the government failed in court, well I think I'm justified to take those initiatives. Right, but
0: then there's the, so you're saying you can be a partisan appointed as as a partisan, but you can still exercise independent. But Absolutely, but does totally. the record of the Senate show that for all senators? Uh, well, you know, uh, I mean, people would look at it and say, well, no. In a lot of cases, well, the well, senators just simply rubber stamp. Oh, them that's not true
7: screen. at all. Let's take the last bill that we have adopted. I mean, last year, the Access to Information Bill. I don't know if you remember yep. that. You know, the justices were compelled to publish all their expenses by the last token with their name, and today with the Internet, any crackpot can follow on on a justice and go after a justice, and we can relive a situation we have known with a a former justice from the federal court being killed by somebody who was unhappy with the decision. So now that with the Internet, if you do that, there are risks to do that, and justices cannot defend themselves. They cannot come here and be questioned by you because they have to remain as you no independent and and to remain out of the free. So there there were essential elements to that bill introduced by the government, voted by the House of Commons, comes to the Senate, and we had to question this. Can we accept that? This is a fundamental principle of our justice system that that the courts are independent from parliament. So we fought the government on that and the government finally adopted our amendments.
0: Do we have a more independent Senate today as you leave than we had five years ago?
7: There are more independent senators. That we know. in In principle. In principle, by the number and by the label, but the proof is in the pudding. You know? Show me the bill and tell me if on a bill that is found wanting, those senators want to stand up and can maintain their position and live by the conclusion that they have come to. That's where you can uh, say uh, if they are independent or and not. is that uh, what you've seen? There has been an improvement, but as I saw uh, with uh, medical assistance in dying, you remember that bill yes. four years ago? Well, there were less, you know, the number of independent senators were in smaller number than they are today. But suppose the same issue happens today, okay? That the House of Commons adopts something, uh, a section of that bill that that is found contrary to the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, and even though they have that conclusion in front of them, they decided to stick to their gun. And you made that.
0: You made that point. I made that
7: point. I convinced my fellow citizens, uh, my fellow senators, that we were right. To stand, by, to stand against the government. But when the bill was returned to the House of Commons and came back to the Senate, I said, listen, let's stand the bill till the court pronounced on it. But the, sen- the senators, the majority, a majority of senators, decided to yield to the government. And, and, now, and
0: now the court has... And now,
7: four years later, and I, and you and me are exactly in the same position that I told you four years ago. Don't do that. You're going to go against a brick wall. So in those conditions, those are exceptional conditions, Peter, but they happen, and we're still back to those same issues. All right, Serge
0: Royal uh, enjoy the retirement, although for you I know it doesn't mean uh, not doing anything. You've got lots of plans to stay busy, uh, well, I, I know well, we'll keep hearing
7: from you. Well, I'm still a member of the Liberal Party, <laughs> you know, so I can challenge the leader, I can challenge the policy. I have the freedom to do it if I come to that conclusion. We'll look forward to it. Serge Royel,
0: always a pleasure, thanks.
7: Pleasure, Peter, and thank you so much for your welcoming in the studio for all those years. Thank you.
0: While the Prime Minister is insisting the government has no plans to impose licensing requirements on news organizations, over the weekend, the Minister of Heritage, Stephen Gilbeau, said in an interview on CTV that Canadian media could face licensing. He was commenting on the recommendations of an expert panel last week. This morning, Gabo met with reporters to clarify the government's position.
2: So far as news organizations go,
0: the report itself specifically recommends that they be exempted from the proposed spending and discoverability obligations that would apply to other media undertakings. Let me be clear. Our government has no intention to impose licensing requirements on news organizations nor will we try to regulate news content.
1: Who asked you to come here today oh, and clarify I, your I remarks? I did that
0: all by myself as a big boy. I mean, Why? clearly some, pe- some people Why? some people were confused. I, I could see that some people were confused about this particular uh, p- recommendation in, in the report, so I felt it was important okay. to clarify. it. Well, Stephen Gabbaud's explanation today didn't convince the opposition, which picked up the story in question period with the Prime Minister.
2: Mr. Speaker, George Orwell's 1984 was supposed to be a cautionary tale about the evils of big government, not an instruction manual for this Prime Minister. Right? But it's no wonder that Canadians are suspicious about this. This is the same Prime Minister who has admiration for China's basic dictatorship, yep. the same Prime Minister who he who praise on Fidel Castro, a man who is responsible for the deaths of of millions. And of course he put Jerry Diaz on a panel to decide which news organizations will get cash. Now in today's uh, press conference, the, the Minister actually said that media organizations You're right
8: Honourable Prime Minister. <laughs> Mr. Speaker, on this side of the House, we believe in a strong, free and independent so press. A third party report we received proposes to exempt news media from licensing requirements. I want to be unequivocal. We will not impose licensing requirements on news organizations, nor will we regulate news content.
0: Well, let's pick up on this story with three colleagues from the Parliamentary Press Gallery. Susan Delacorte is a columnist with the Toronto Star, uh, Bob is the Parliamentary Bureau Chief for the Globe and Mail, and John Iveson is a columnist with the National Post and Parliamentary Bureau Chief for Post Media. Good to see you all. So, we have the Prime Minister in question, period, saying his government has no intention of, of licensing the news media. Stephen Gilbo, after the interview he gave on the weekend, made a point of coming out today. We saw that where he said, "Look." Uh, I came out, I'm a big boy, made the decision myself to clarify this. We're not going to license the media. Is that the end of this?
9: No. <laughs>
0: <laughs> um, Why not?
9: I, I, I saw my mailbox was still getting ads from the likes of Ontario Proud, et cetera, saying this is the Trudeau government trying to take control of the media or trying to buy the media. And as all of us know, um, ever since this government, I think for good reasons, I will say, I'll give you my address at the end of the show to send the hate mail. Um, I think for good reasons. Uh, there, there are arguments about trying to do something for the news media in Canada or try to sort of fix what's uh, what's wrong with it, but this is a fraught, troublesome territory, and Mr. Gibo, newcomer to cabinet, newcomer to politics, or elected politics, walked right into one of the most um, polarizing... Nasty debates on the, uh, in the Canadian political world, which is, does the government have a role in helping the media? Uh,
0: John, yeah, exactly.
8: <laughs> <laughs> I, I rest my case. No, but it, it's true. I mean, two thirds of Canadians don't trust politicians. That number rises for conservatives. These conspiracy theories about uh, the government's critics being bought off are out there, and this guy just fueled them. Um, you know, it was a it was a, a rookie mistake from a rookie minister um obviously uh I mean I agree with susan that the the, the thing that 's out there at the moment the media bailout is a is a tax credit for companies that hire journalists um, without the without that tax credit, many companies would be uh, in in trouble at the moment but it, obviously it is uh, a bone of contention for people and by suggesting you 're now going to regulate the media um, I mean, it, it, Trudeau stood up and said that the, it, it, the thing clearly states it's going to exempt news companies. It doesn't, it's not very clear at all. There is an exemption word in, but used but, but in but there. If he,
0: but if he makes that case, if, 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 it seems they're trying to walk this line, Bob, between media versus news, right? There are media companies who don't do news. They do other things. Uh,
10: does that wash with you? Well, first of all, in the case of Mr. Gibo, he was sort of this rising star in Quebec everybody to watch this guy he's really smart and he is but he's not that smart clearly <laughs> he he stepped into it he's um, he was deeply embarrassed by it he didn't like the questions he got from journalists he kind of got offended that they would ask him the questions that he was backtracking so I think he's taken a hit um, and we'll see um, how he performs uh, because what we st- the shine's gone off this guy now. Maybe he's not as smart as he thinks he is, or we think he is. In terms of the whole issue of... On um, the policy side, I mean... On the pol- yeah, on the policy side, uh, the government doesn't know where they're going on this, and I don't think anybody does, to be honest. Well, we, we know it. where they're not going now. Yeah. It's, it's, yeah, it's wherever right.
8: this re- report recommended. They can't afford to touch this report now. Right. Right. I mean, people, this part uh, of it, people, yeah.
10: uh, people do not want government involvement uh, in the media, and the Conservatives have jumped on that right from the get-go. Uh, media companies themselves are struggling with how do we get help from the government um, without making it look like they like were beholden to, beholden to them and that, there are t- uh, that you know, we're, we're tied to them. And that's a difficult thing. Uh, so somehow we have to work it through it, through the tax system. So, yeah, so, the, so the, the, the questions they
8: were trying to answer, two of them are, to me are very legitimate. One of them is the, the CBC's role, <coughs> And this panel recommended that the CBC move away from advertising right. over five years, which I think you know, idea. most people would say that that's probably where the CBC should be, not running Family Feud and other programs like it chasing advertising dollars. The other is the fact well, that...
10: Well, they're also competing with, with, with news with organizations who are trying to make... M- right. when we don't get any money. Right. We get it from people supporting us, and the CBC has more journalists here in Ottawa putting stuff out on the, on the web that is free that makes a big difference to the, the three sure. of us yes. who work for news organizations who want to try charge. Trying to monetize
0: that right. and, and running up against a publicly subsidized operation. A 1.3
8: billion dollars. Yeah. Just to finish this other, the, yeah. other, the other area I think is where uh, organi- parasitical organizations like Facebook take our content and put it on their platforms and they make money from the platform. This report actually recommended that there be some kind of regulation which ensured that Facebook and other companies like it Paid the content providers, so there are genuine questions uh, to be asked here, but I just don't think they found the right answers.
9: Yeah, what I always say when when people have asked me about this, I say I, it, it's simple. Government journalism has two jobs in this democracy: one is a business, one is a public service. Um, we can do our public service job. We do have to do it, holding the government accountable. That's what the business model is struggling mm. uh, because of Facebook and Google and. Uh, the internet generally. So the government is struggling with how to ke- keep the public service role of journalism alive without appearing to get involved in its business. And that's where we are now. Um, and Mr. Gibo with his remarks, sort of played right into the worst fears of journalists alike and the, the media critics, which okay. is, th- this is the government trying to buy good yeah, coverage. especially in the
10: world that we're facing now, where everybody is out there saying this is fake news. Right legitimate news organizations that have actual editors that check over everything and make sure that uh, our the material is factually right and that we have onbudsman if you can complain to. We got people that are saying if they don't like the story, it's fake news. This is a very frightening period of time that we're going through. You know? Let me ask you about, uh, let's talk about the Conservative leadership race. And over the weekend, Peter McKay,
0: even though the money, no money was required, no signatures were required for another few weeks here. Uh, over the, Over the weekend, Peter McKay uh, pays the whole freight, three hundred thousand bucks right up front, and has all the signatures, three thousand signatures. You need. What's what's the message he's sending?
9: You know, it reminds me of is um, Paul Martin when he uh, entered the leadership race that he was going to win. He showed up with um, all the delegates signed every riding in Canada. Um, it's a show of strength. It's a you know it's it's to intimidate his opponents and say that. Uh, this is going to be more of a coronation than it is going to be
10: a Does it work, Bob? Uh, well, uh, it's so far it is working. Um, yeah. You notice that almost every day he's got two or three endorsements if they're not from uh, conservative MPs, sitting conservative MPs or ones who are formally uh, being conservative MPs or had... Um, you know, had run for the party, so um, he's he's got a, a smart strategy here, which is to try to frighten people off with, A, I've got the money, you, you, uh-huh. and look at the endorsements I'm having all the time. And he's also out there constantly now on in uh, on the in the Twitter world and social media world putting uh, you know stuff out yeah he was out, he was out there today John uh, actually pulling back a tweet or, or uh,
0: playing down a tweet from his own site his own verified site from somebody in his campaign who had uh, criticized Justin Trudeau's $800 expenditure on yoga uh, courses and lessons uh, while he was running for the liberal leadership Peter McKay says look uh, I didn't see it. I don't agree with that. I want to raise the tone of the campaign, so that's not the kind of thing yeah, I that's, wanted. That's kind
8: of a, a sign of confidence, I think. I mean, you wouldn't do that if you were pretty nervous about your own performance. I think he, he does feel slightly relaxed, maybe even complacent that he's running away with this. I think we'll still see uh, another candidate or two coming in. I think John Williamson is serious about doing this, and it's not just him and a couple of guys in his riding. He's, he's got some serious people who are looking at a campaign, whether he could be the guy who could uh, unseat McKay. But again, another Easterner. There's nobody from the West. Well,
10: oh, he's got to get $300,000, too. That's, That's so tough to, get. Let's John, tough to b- get. John Baird's name keeps, keeps coming. coming up, keeps coming up, uh, but I think he keeps saying no, and everybody around him keeps saying, you got to do it. Now, if he came in, that would be a formidable race because he is bilingual. He's a natural politician. He's had many senior portfolios as well. He'd give Peter a real run for his money. Okay, let's finish on this. Uh,
0: later in the week, the Prime Minister heads to Africa to try and shore up Canada's uh, bid for a, uh, a seat on the UN Security Council, temporary seat in 2021, up against uh, Ireland and Norway. Uh, is this bid in trouble?
9: I've uh, I've been assuming that the bid uh, was in trouble for a while now. Um,
0: and what I, does that mean to Justin Trudeau with all his previous uh, pronouncements about Canada being back if they lose this bid?
9: Yeah, it... Uh, it it's, it's a difficult one. Ireland and Norway are, are in there, sort of, uh, we're in far ahead of things. Canada got to it late. You didn't hear a lot about it in the first mandate. It seems like kind of a last ditch bid to show they were serious about what they said, to say we gave it a good try. But I think they must, or at least everything I'm hearing, I'm not tied to the United Nations or anything like that, but I'm, I'm hearing that it's not Canada's turn.
8: John? Well, the, the Governor General, it's getting desperate times because apparently the Governor General was enlisted to uh, whisper in the ear of uh, re- visiting new ambassadors. Um, Trudeau going to Africa suggests, you know, it's not as if there are not important things going on elsewhere in the world. But there are 54 African countries out of 190. Some of them are French-speaking, so you would think that Canada might have an advantage there. And Canada does spend quite a lot of money in uh, in in Africa. The um, I think it was the Foreign Affairs Minister was saying we've spent... $1.6 billion in Mali
10: over the last mm. few years. But we've largely ignored Africa. <laughs> and our development, and our
0: development budget our is b- down development around point was, .3 was and a joke. Ireland's yeah. committed to get to point right. .7, which is the UN standard, I mean,
10: Norway's at one. Norway is, well, is guaranteed. guaranteed, Ireland's probably going to beat Canada easily. I mean, look at what the problems we have. China's mad at us. Uh, we've done very little in Africa, and a lot of Africans have complained about that. Saudi Arabia is mad at us. So what do you think those Arab countries are going to do? Um, we, have, we have no presence at all in South America. That's just been forgotten. So I think we're going to have a very, very difficult time winning this. And it's going to look very bad for the prime minister because he made a big deal when Stephen Harper lost the UN seat. Well, when you let us in, we're going to get that seat back because Canada's back. Maybe not just yet. We'll, yeah. uh, we'll see what yeah. happens. Thank you all. Yeah. Thank Cheers. you.
0: Well, that's all for another edition of Primetime Politics on CPAC, the cable public affairs channel. I'm Peter Van Dusen in Ottawa. Thanks for watching.